Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome back to this week's episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick, and welcome to episode 55. If you have listened to all 54 previous episodes, wow, I appreciate you. <laughs> but I also think you've learned a lot of really cool fraud nuggets. At least I love hearing from so many of you who enjoy listening to this podcast. And even if not every piece of information applies to your current role or what you're working on now, I know a lot of people just enjoy feeling connected to the industry and understanding what other people within the industry are experiencing. So I thoroughly enjoy doing this podcast and I am very grateful that so many of you listen very regularly. So we're still in the, I think, second week of January, second full week of January of 2022, but I feel like it's been a long two weeks already. In addition to one-time password bots, that is something that, although I saw headlines about it last year, I didn't pay too much attention until I started to hear questions and reports of activity that seemed related to that. And it definitely, I've gotten confirmation that this is happening on multiple providers of online pa or one-time passwords and multi-factor authentication. So I'll dive into that a little bit. And then honestly, I think my biggest prediction for 2022 is that fraudsters are going to continue to invest and utilize more technology on their side. And that technology is really being used to breach your systems to look legitimate. It's essentially like we're in a technological arms race with bad actors. And we have been for years, but as technology has been innovating at a pretty rapid pace over the last few years, they're definitely using that to their advantage. And I think there's some, not complacency, but there are some systems and processes that we've relied on for years that have worked until now. And they're learning how to manipulate or exploit those or, or get around them. And so that's kind of what I want to talk about more today is really around some of the ways that fraudsters are bypassing some of the layers of technology that e-commerce as well as fintech and digital banks have been putting in place. I struggle sometimes with these types of episodes for a few reasons. One, because it can make me, it can turn me into a Debbie Downer pretty quickly or negative Nancy or whatever you want to say. Just feeling like, man, I've got bad news after bad news after bad news. But like I've said before, I've kind of had to readjust my thinking that instead of only providing problems when there's a solution, I do think that part of the solution is just knowing that there's even a problem, being able to know what to look for, say, oh, is this what's attacking us now? Is this what's happening? But then there's also just this overarching trend, additional technology on both sides. And if we aren't adapting and innovating 
even half as quickly as they are, it's going to be a long year. So everything from, you know, fraud as a service to advanced technology is really impacting the fraud world in so many ways. And we'll talk about it on all different episodes, you know, different aspects of this. But on this episode, I really just wanted to talk about what happens when the crooks get the keys to our kingdom. How can we pivot? How can we identify that? And that's where we'll start. So the first headline from this Vice article is that Crook sells access data to data tool by used by private investigators and law enforcement. Basically, fraudsters are selling access to TLO reports via through TransUnion. This is not necessarily new. I actually found it interesting that they put that they did this article when I first read the headline and kind of skimmed it. I thought it was a more advanced scheme, but really they were reporting on the fact that there's a fraudster in a telegram group that's selling TLO reports. I don't think this is as new as we think, but I do know it's very consistent with the fraud trend I mentioned on last Thursday's episode where e-commerce merchants are definitely seeing a trend of fraudsters using legitimate cardholder email address and phone numbers. They don't have access to those elements, but they've noticed that for from for some systems, those systems are just verifying that the email address or the phone number or the address belongs to the person. They're not able to go a step further to say that the person who those elements belong to is the one placing the order. You need to have more layers for that. I think there's been some reliance on data verification brokers, and, and those are great tools. But we have to know that, especially in the U.S., a lot of them are pulling information from the same places. They're pulling it from free public records data because in the U.S., a lot of our data is public. There are a lot of other sites online where people can pay $20 to get that information. So just because they've gotten access to one type of verification tool doesn't mean they don't have access to other types. And that's how they've been able to build FULLS for so many years, F-U-L-L-Z. I think the difference is while they used to maybe have that information, they wouldn't use it because they wanted to be able to not have the customer know that they're using their card or their email address or their account. So they would often create a new email. But because our technology on our site's gotten pretty good at knowing how long an email address has been seen or has been ex um, in existence, depending on the domain, they're now saying, well, okay, they're looking at how new an email address is. So instead of using a new email address where that correspondence only goes to us, we're willing to take the risk of the cardholder getting that confirmation email, or maybe we're going to flood their inbox at the same time as the confirmation email with lots of spammy emails. So the confirmation email from that merchant or that bank or that crypto company is just mixed in with all this spam and they just have to delete all 4,000 emails that came in at once. They're also realizing that a lot of people aren't looking at their email or looking in their promotions folder or those types of emails will go to spam. So they're leveraging that it's better to use an email address that they don't have access to than it is to make up their own. And I think it's important for everyone to know that. It's also important to you know, work with your data provider for verification 
to determine the weight of that match within your automated system, as well as where they're getting their data sources from. Are there additional layers of information about that data, such as triangulating or um, looking at the different data elements altogether? So one example would be this email address, this phone number, this address, and this credit card have all been used together for the last six years. That's gonna be a little bit more information. It, you can also add device on there or whatever it is, right? So you're trying to make it more pinpoint and using data that fraudsters may not have access to or having additional layers. So if they meet that threshold, they're not gonna meet an additional one. You know, it's definitely just important to know that we can't treat identity information as only known to the owner of the ID and only known to the fraud fighting community or good actors. That's really what I'm trying to get across here is we just need to be aware that fraudsters have access to this too. And I know that there are a significant amount of chargebacks that are coming back to retailers, especially whose systems said, oh, yep, this email address belongs to that cardholder, so you're good, and just auto-pass all these orders. So that's, you know, a good example of using that chargeback feedback loop to be able to determine what fraud did we miss and how can we tweak or maybe augment our current risk stack to be able to catch this next time. You certainly can't rely on manual review and calling the phone number for every single person or sending, you know, one-off emails manually to ask the customer to call in a customer service. Like that's just not scalable at all. If you're a small business, maybe, but not scalable for uh, the big brand merchants that I know listen to this podcast regularly. Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is sardine? I mean, other than a small oily fish in the herring family, sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you. Benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, Sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. Another example of 
Fraudsters using our technology against us are what are being referred to as one-time password bots. And as I mentioned, I've seen headlines about this. I've heard people talk about it. I think it really focused on banks and issuing banks and all of that first. And then, you know, there's kind of this hierarchy of targets. And now it's going towards large brand uh, companies that have expensive items especially for account takeovers. So what exactly is a one-time password bot? It's a bot that is able to circumvent that verification process that so many online companies now use. As a customer, sometimes when I log into an account from a different device or a different, I use a different payment method or whatever it is, if I were to change my email, et cetera, the online company wants to verify it really is me making this purchase or making these changes. And so they will send a you know six to 10 digit, sometimes it's alphanumeric code to my phone, and I just have to enter it in on the website. That shows them that I have my phone in my possession. And that's really where SIM swaps used to circumvent that. So that still happens, but they uh, if a fraudster really wanted to take over an account, they could call the service provider of my cell phone, get it switched to another company, uh, get that text message, verify that, that they get they had access to that phone number, and then quickly port it back over to my fraud, my phone provider, not my fraud provider, my cell, my mobile phone provider to be able so that maybe I wouldn't notice that it got taken over for a little bit. This We see this a lot in banking fraud and loans and other pieces like that. Well, SIM swaps are expensive. They're time-consuming for fraudsters. As Gil and I were talking about on the last episode, really the goal of fraud fighters is to try to make it too expensive and too timely, or too time-consuming to overtake your systems and to you know, target your company, your website, your fintech for fraud. And one-time passwords make it much cheaper to do that. One-time password bots, I mean, make it so much cheaper for, for them on the fraud side to be able to take over accounts that have this piece, this element of security. And this can be scary for a lot of companies that rely on one-time passwords to be able to prevent account takeovers. And it's not to say that they can't be trusted at all, but I think it's important to know that there are workarounds. So there are various variations of this of these bots, and often they depend on the provider that a merchant may use for one-time passwords or multi-factor authentication, or they're depending on the way that the system works. So if that one-time password is verification is also looking at device, so they're asking you to log in on your phone to put or send the text message back through the system rather than on the website so that the provider of the one-time password can see, okay, this is the, they are texting from the phone number that we have on file versus just, you know, providing us with this number that came to that phone number. If that's the case, then the way it would work is the fraudster was, would place an order online or try to access an account of some kind. They then at the same time, they know that the website is going to send a one-time password to the victim. They're going to enter in the victim's phone number as well as the company that they are trying to commit fraud from. The company that's sending the one-time password to the customer, they're entering that into this one-time password bot 
And the customer is getting two text messages almost back to back, one from the legitimate one-time password provider. And that text message is, you know, saying, here's your one-time password code, please re-enter it on our website. Then they're getting a follow-up one saying, you may be a victim, your, your account may have been compromised. In order to confirm that you are the account holder, you need to respond to the text message from X company. Or that way, the actual customer is like, oh, I don't want to, it's a form of social engineering, right? I don't want anyone else to have access to my account. So I'm going to ensure that they know I have access to my phone number and I may give them access. Well, what that really does is give the fraudster access to your account or to their account. Another way that it may happen is that it may say you just received a one-time password from this bank or this website. We need to confirm that you have access to this. Please enter the one-time password here. And once the customer replies to that, the fraudster gets the one-time password to enter into the website and they're off to the races, as they say. Like I said, there are other variations as well, but those are the two core variations of this. And, you know, there are screenshots on the websites that ought, that sell these just to show how easy it is. There's, it, we, I've had a few conversations with merchants in the last few weeks that are really feeling the pain of this and they're working with their one-time password providers. And I know that the one-time password providers are also trying to very quickly upgrade their technology to be able to identify these bots or be able to put some more guardrails in place. But one-time password bots aren't the only thing. Oh, the one other thing I was going to mention on OTP bots is that they're only $500 to $1,000 a month for unlimited bot calls or $0.15 cents per call. That's significantly cheaper than having to go through a SIM swap process. It's also much more time. It, it saves a lot of time for them. So that is why they're moving this way. But in addition to OTP bots, a lot of us have seen other types of bots over the years. And then there's new ones being added at all times. There's account opening bots on the banking side, on e-commerce side, etc. Sometimes those are fairly easy to identify when you're looking at the session time. If it takes the average person five minutes to set up an account on your system and you're seeing a very large quantity of accounts being set up within 30 seconds, that could be or even, you know, 10 seconds, that could be an indicator of an automated service, a bot doing this and filling out an application or well, not an application, but just filling out an account for your website or services. There are loan application bots, so they're able to apply for multiple accounts at once or very quickly. These are all numbers games, but this is flooding your systems. And so that's why, you know, even if you may be able to catch them, the sheer volume can make it so it's a numbers game and and inevitably inevitably there are often a few that get through and that's what they care about. There's credential stuffing bots, there are social engineering bots, there are refund bots. I've actually been working with a couple uh, very big name merchants and have alerted them that there are bots being sold that are exploiting their refund policies. Oftentimes they're talking with chat bots on the other side so they it it's like two bots talking to each other and often they're using AI so they're melding to the conversation. Other times they just have a script but there are people who are doing nothing but just studying your system so well and they know exactly what questions are asked in chat and if your company's using you know an AI chat bot and the fraudster is using an AI chat bot then these two 
robots essentially are talking to each other, but they're one robot has the keys to the kingdom, right? One robot can say, oh, okay. The robot on the customer service side can say, okay, it looks like you didn't get your item. Okay, here's your refund. There are other types of bots that are targeting specific merchants, especially the bigger ones that are one-stop shopper that sell very expensive name brand electronics that are great for resale. These are all things you need to be aware of. I think with both of these things, this is my core prediction for 2022. And that is that it's going to continually be a technological arms race between bad actors and good actors. This has continued for years, but like I said, as there's more technology available, they're getting just as smart as well. I've seen multiple job postings for data analysts as well as engineers and software engineers and developers to work on the dark side, so to speak, and to develop these bots and they get paid quite well. There's an entire ecosystem on that side and sometimes they don't even know what they're doing. They just like to build things to get around systems. Other times they don't really care because the money's so good. So these are, you know, things to be aware of. They have development resources on their side too. And there are some very big differences between bad actors and good actors in getting more technological advancements on either side, right? Because it's it's much easier for them to pivot to better technology quickly than it is on this side. Fraudsters don't have to go through the RFI or RFP process. If they do, they're comparing two companies really quick. They don't have to go through an NDA or go through a privacy and security check of the systems and make sure that it layers well with the technology they already have built. They certainly don't have to ask anyone for budget. Uh, in fact, one could say they've had a never-ending budget, especially for the last couple of years with these war chests they've been building with unemployment fraud, PPP fraud, SBA fraud in the U.S., as I talked about with Gil in part one of our conversation last week. So it's more important than ever to layer your systems. And I think that January is a really good time to just assess your systems. Look at your risk tech stack from beginning to end. Try to identify any gaps in those processes or anything that a fraudster may be able to get around knowing that they can get access to good customer, to the right customer data, knowing that they can get access to one-time password bots, knowing that they can get through these holes, so to speak, where are some other layers you can place? And, you know, getting in, it's challenging for me to get into specifics. One, because I'm a consultant. And so that's what I do in my business, in my area of business. So, but more actually than that, it's just that there's no one cookie cutter. There are so many dependencies on what the best solution is for every company. I think, you know, getting a core solution in place is first, knowing if this is a core solution that adapts and innovates over time to new fraud, or if they're kind of coasting and more of a legacy system, are they investing in new technology or new acquisitions to continue to make them, you know, at the forefront with today's version of fraud, or are they a system that really just kind of sustains and is fighting fraud now the same way they did five years ago. That matters. For some companies, they're not going to see these highly sophisticated fraud attacks. And that's great. You can probably get away with less layers. But there are other companies, you know, depending on what you're selling and, and how much they could resell an item for or a service for, it's going to be worth investing in because, you know, it's this brings up such a different you know topic which is really around creating a business case and that's something I 
having a guest to come talk about pretty soon on the podcast on the interview episodes. But, you know, in addition to a core solution and looking at that, looking at the other ancillary tools that you're adding on top of it, right? Your verification system, you know, your device ID, your digital fingerprints. Does it make sense to add even additional tools like verifying their identity, their identity document, right? Whether that's a driver's license or passport or whatever that country document is, having a selfie check or a liveness check. There are a lot of additional pieces you could add, but you also have to take into account customer friction and does it make sense, right? I'm certainly if I'm asked to send a picture or upload a picture of my driver's license and a picture of my, you know, or a video of myself looking to the right and looking to the left, if I'm asked to do that for a hundred dollar pair of shoes, I'm not going to want to do that. But if I'm asked to do that to rent a house short term on vacation or, you know, to, you know, for gig economy workers or others, or for opening a new bank account or a new investment account, that's going to make sense. So there's just a lot of pieces to the puzzle that you're going to have to look at. Does this make sense for our customers? Are they willing to do that? Or is this enough on the back end to where there's not going to be a lot of friction? But these are just all things I think are really good to check mark. I've gotten a handful of emails in the last week and a half from a few companies that are starting to go through this process and have asked to hop on a discovery call soon. So I know that several of you are doing this. And in addition to looking at all the layers on the front end, the other piece that I think a lot of people miss, but I've been preaching this for at least 15 years. So I know I know a lot of people miss this, but I also know the value and importance of it is having a feedback loop. So if you're an e-commerce merchant, most likely your feedback loop for how you're doing at fighting fraud is chargebacks. How many are coming in? And don't just look at the fraud reason code. I've talked about that on previous episodes. Unfortunately, that's become a catch-all on the issuing side. But diving into that, building a process where you have someone doing almost like reverse engineer of an order to find out if it really was fraud. And if it was, marking those data elements within your system is important, but also looking at how did they get through your system? And there's at least one chargeback provider, and I really think they're the only ones that provide insanely detailed business data intelligence on chargebacks. Unfortunately, there's some that just feel like they're just going to tell you which ones you won, which ones you lost. And that's about it, because quite honestly, I think part of their business model lends themselves to maybe not wanting to do that. But I know there's a lot of merchants that are, you know, even if you're fighting them in-house, you're able to build some data elements around it. But where were the sales coming from? Was there an affiliate link attached to it? Was there a specific marketing campaign, uh, geography? Is there a naming convention in the email that's similar to other orders like this? Like, what are the elements within that? Because your true fraud chargebacks are showing you what fraud your system and your processes are missing. Additionally, they're going to tell you why your customers are unhappy and calling their banks for their money instead of you. So you can also look at the other reason codes, look at that data, you know, to find out everything you can, everything from what bank are they using? Like maybe there's a, a specific card that card issuer that fraudsters are going through. Maybe they bought a giant bin range from one specific bank and they just tried to run all of them through your system. 
there's just so many different data elements you can use from that, from that chargeback intelligence that I think is just really important. I actually just heard, uh, I was talking with someone that was telling me about a merchant that I know that uh, was receiving tens of thousands of chargebacks a month. And that's not uncommon for a large brand, but just by looking at the data analysis and the root cause analysis, they were able to cut that number by two thirds. So they were able to cut that down to very, you know, very low amount just by looking at why are chargebacks coming in in the first place? Is there something we can tweak in our terms of service? Is there more language we can add on our website? Why are they, why are these coming in and how can we change that? And I've also worked with merchants on that and it is very fulfilling and always surprising at how much money we can save them by not even having feature chargebacks come in. And then on top of that, for the ones that you do still receive, creating a really good process to respond to them. So not trying to get into chargebacks too much, but I think it's really important to look at end to end. And now is a great time. I mean, new year, new fraud tool, uh, a new year, new fraud system or, or new processes. Even you can add processes or change policies or tweak your current tools too. You don't always have to add new ones, but it is important to work with solution partners that are invested and committed to continually updating their processes and keeping up with the bad guys. How much do they know about what current trends are happening and what you're exposed to? I think that's really important in looking for partners because as we can tell, and just through topics on this podcast alone, like this podcast episode, these guys are becoming more and more sophisticated and we need to continually up our game and assess our strategies and tweak them a little bit so that the target is always changing and it makes their job more difficult. And I'm just going to repeat it again because I thought it was very good. Uh, like Gil and I talked about on this past episode, I think it was on part two where we were talking about how important it is to make sure that fraudsters are having to pay way too much time and way too much money to exploit your systems. Unfortunately, right now, we're still not trying to outrun the bear. We're trying to outrun everyone else. But that's also why I'm so big on collaboration so that you know, as many companies as possible don't have to be the weak link. Hopefully one day in a perfect world, we'll have everyone together. And so we'll all be rising and the tide will be rising for everyone and making it harder. But in the meantime, it's most important to protect your own company. That is where I'm going to stop for today. I think that that is enough to chew on for now. I think it's just more important than ever to Look for ways to up your game because unfortunately the bad actors are and they're doing a good job at it. But I don't know, I'm partial to our side. I think we'll win in the long run. With that, I thank you again for listening to this episode. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate and review in Apple and now Spotify. And I look forward to speaking with you on Tuesday. I'll talk to you next week.
thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.